0: I recall a conversation I had several years ago, several years ago, with a, a member of the Board of Trust at Anderson University who is interviewing Evans Whitaker to be the new president of the university. And this uh, mem- member of the board, they had asked, of course, Evans Whitaker had been interviewing for a couple of days, and when he met with the board, uh, the board member said, well, uh, Dr. Whitaker, what books are you reading now? And Dr. Whitaker kind of laughed. He just drew a blank. You know, He's probably reading six books right now, but he sort of drew a blank. And that actually ended up being kind of a bonding moment. He got the job, has done a great job uh, anyway. But it's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. People you respect, people you admire, people you follow, what do they read that helps them? Well, uh, if we were to ask that question... Of Martin Luther, he certainly would remember, uh, and he would certainly state that he reads the Book of Romans. Of course, that's where he became converted. But he dearly, dearly, dearly loved the Psalms, and one Psalm in particular, Psalm 46, was his favorite of all Psalms. As a matter of fact, it's even known as Luther's Psalm. In the day, difficult days when it just seemed like the entire world was going to uh, destroy the efforts of the Reformation. Uh, Luther's uh, theologian, uh, would be uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, would be with him. And then Luther would look at Philip Melanchthon and say, come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. We know that Psalm as a mighty fortress is our God. Luther said this, we sing this Psalm in the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all of the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. My great hope this morning as we look at Psalm 46, at Luther's Psalm, that we will be able to recognize the truth that a mighty fortress is our God on this Reformation Sunday, 2022. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you, Lord. We are in such need of encouragement from your holy word, God. For we see so many assaults upon the truth, so many assaults upon uh, upon our God, so many assaults upon the church. We are surrounded by blasphemers and the immoral. We also know the corruption of our own heart. So I pray, Lord God, that that you would take this psalm this morning... Apply these truths to the power of the Holy Spirit to us and let it become not just Luther's psalm, but our psalm. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to Psalm 46 and you will find uh, the home group helps insert might be of assistance to you. Uh, this is one of those uh, kind of easy uh, uh, psalms to kind of break down in terms of uh, to give you a, an order uh, that might be of help to you uh, because every one of the three standards of the psalm ends with Selah, which is a musical break, and it's really, in a sense, a, a, a pause in for, for you to be able to meditate upon the truths that have just been spoken. I'm actually borrowing the outline from G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was the, uh, the venerable pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London and he uh, replaced Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he had just an amazing outline, so I thought, why reinvent the wheel? So you'll see here uh, that we'll see in Psalm 46 the challenge of confidence in verses 1 through 3, the secret of confidence in verses 4 through 7, and the vindication of confidence in verses 8 through 11. And I'm just... We love this psalm, and I'm just excited to be able to express to you some of the truths that uh, I've been able to research that we can uh, share together on this Reformation Day. First of all, the challenge of confidence, verses 1 through 3. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, A song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. So notice the introduction here. Even the introduction begins with grace. It is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, does that name Korah ring any bells to you? Does it remind you of anything from the Old Testament? Well, you might uh, recall uh, the lessons from Numbers 16 through 17 where Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They were done with wandering in the wilderness. They they missed Egypt. Yeah, there was slavery there, but there were also pots of meat that we could eat them. And they wanted, to, they wanted to lead the people of God in rebellion against God. And, uh, and basically, the, the battle lines formed and God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and his followers and then closed the earth back. Uh, there's a plenty of lessons in that one, I guess. But it's kind of a terrifying experience. And yet, and yet Korah evidently had some grandchildren that survived, some children perhaps that survived. And they were also in the priesthood. And they were the ones that actually wrote this song in worship uh, to the Lord. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and they go on to say here, perhaps learning the, the, the lesson of the, the shame of their great-great-great-grandfather here, that God is a refuge and a strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Or a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood Of mortal ills prevailing. Now, there's a possible setting here that uh, that might reflect two of the points of this particular song, and that was the siege of Sennacherib, uh, uh, the Assyrian king, uh, that we see here in 2 Kings 19. Again, going back to your Old Testament, you might recall that particular siege. Sennacherib had taken over much of Judah. Uh, he had besieged Jerusalem. Uh, we even have a relief of, of, uh, of the Sennacherib that says here that I had pinned up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and then uh, we have a situation there where Isaiah was the prophet at the time. He was in Jerusalem. 2 Kings 19 says that Isaiah, the son of Ahaz, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Assyria, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. I will take care of it. I, your God, am a mighty fortress. And Hezekiah has got to be thinking, they've already conquered most of the land. There's no way that I can defeat the Assyrians. Well, he didn't have to because, if you recall, God sent an angel. And in one night, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Sennacherib fled, went back to Assyria, and was murdered by his own people. That's a really powerful angel. A really powerful angel. One angel killed 185,000. You might recall that the night that Jesus was betrayed, that uh, his uh, impetuous uh, apostles tried to defend him. And Jesus says, uh, Can I not call upon 12 legions of angels? Well, just to, now J- Jesus was probably using figurative language there. He certainly did not call upon those angels. 12 is sort of a, a number of the tribes of Israel, the number of the apostles. But if you do the math, and I did the math, and I did the math without help, it's a miracle. <laughs> There's 6,000 soldiers in a legion. So, there, so if you, that would be 72,000 angels uh, when, where one angel killed 185,000. If you have that same ratio, those angels could kill 13,320,000,000 people. Angels are very, very powerful. Again, Jesus is just illustrating the point. But God sent that angel in reference to the prayer made by Hezekiah and to protect his people and to keep his covenant vows. That is your God as well. There is nothing that he cannot do to preserve his children. We have a mighty fortress. He is our God. This amazing situation with uh, Sennacherib uh, was, uh, <clears throat> was referenced to in the poem by Lord Byron, which uh, also is a, is a wonderful thing to reflect upon and very well read. Listen now carefully to the words of Lord Byron and his famous poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib. And I think it'll give you a sense of just how powerful is our God and what a mighty fortress he is. The Assyrians came down like the wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like the stars on the sea, when the blue waves roll nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest, when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest, when autumn hath blown, thou hast on the morrow lay withered and strown, For the death angel spread his wings on the blast, and the breath in the face of the foe as he passed, and the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved, And forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostril all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay white on the surf and as cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider distorted and pale with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher were loud in their wail, and the idols all broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of a Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. A mighty fortress is our God. And what is the result of that? Therefore, we will not fear. That is a reality, and it's also a commandment, is it not? Our hope is in God, it's not in the world. Disasters occur, fortunes change, but our God is a refuge in our strength. Seneca, a Roman statesman and a philosopher who, of course, lived at the same time as the Apostle Paul, stated this as a pagan, that all men are longing for absolute or toward salvation. That though the men were overwhelmingly conscious of their weakness and insufficiency and uh, necessary things, and they therefore were looking for a hand let down to lift us up. Oh, if only God would send someone to help us and to give us salvation. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, well. his crafting power great and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not as equal. And though this world with devil's fills should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth. To triumph through us. He goes on to give some examples here. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, I can't imagine something more uh, calamitous than the mountains falling into the sea. And even at that time, we are to put our hope in God, who is a rock who never moves, He is our mighty fortress. Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus gives us both a negative example and positive examples of why it is that we should trust in him. Uh, And this is so important for all of us to hear. Anxiety is just a pandemic right now among young and among old. And, And Jesus understood that principle and understood the things that we struggle with, the things we look about, the news that we watch and how it becomes so overwhelming for us. And he says this, against every form of greed, for not not even one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is uh, what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come take your ease, let, uh, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and yet is not rich toward God. That is... The, mountain, the, the mountains of our wealth, the mountains of everything in this world will eventually slip into the sea. We do not put our hope in those things. We put our hope in the mighty fortress. He goes on to say, and he said to the disciple, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat or for your body as to what you shall uh, put on. For life is more than food and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. And they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? That is a very reasonable argument, is it not? And which of you being anxious can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about these other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But yet, even in Solomon, in all his glory, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things." But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Wow. Wow. Why are we so uptight about our retirement funds when God's already given us the kingdom? Now, we get that rationally, right? But we have to be so consumed with that rationally, it also affects us emotionally. Your God is a mighty fortress. He cares for you. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So you think, well, you know, okay, that's things of the world. What about the spiritual attacks that we are so often uh, under? And we so often are under. Do do y'all know where the current practice of Halloween came from? This is one reason why you come to Christ Reformed Church, because I'm going to fill you in right now. <laughs> all Hallows' Eve is the day before All Saints' Day, which is November 1st. We will probably next Sunday sing For All the Saints in rem- remembrance of All Saints' Day. All Saints' Day was a very special day of the church where we, we, we recognize all of the saints that had gone before. Well, they didn't want the devil showing up and ruining the celebrations of All Saints' Day. So the day before... All Hallows Eve, Halloween, October 31st, they would dress up like devils because the devil himself is so prideful he would be so easily offended and so upset he wouldn't show up for All Saints Day. So the people all went around dressing up like devils to run off the devil, you know. How much more... (laughs) Do you think it upset the devil when Martin Luther, that chubby little Augustan monk, nails those 95 theses to the castle door and starts the Protestant Reformation on All Hallows' Eve? It's brilliant. 365 days of the year could have been, but that's the day that God chose for the Protestant Reformation to begin. Our A prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. Now we see here the secret confidence, verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Notice here he brings in perhaps another uh, um, indicator of uh, the timing of this was during the Assyrian siege, but he talks about the river whose streams, there's an emphasis here on the the flowing good water, Uh, and of course, if you were to besiege a city uh, in the ancient Near East at that time, if they did not have a good, clean water supply, they would be destroyed, During the Assyrian captivity, it's possible that Hezekiah at this time uh, dug out Hezekiah's tunnel. If you go to Jerusalem, you go over to the city of David, you go way down into the bedrock of that city, you can actually walk through Hezekiah's tunnel to this day, knee-deep and very cold water for a third of the mile. What Hezekiah had done was he blocked up a stream so that he would keep the water from being uh, taken by the Assyrians and then ran the canal through into Jerusalem so that they would have a fle- fresh supply of water. But you, Christian, you, Christian, have a holy supply of water that cannot be stopped up. It doesn't matter how long the devil or anybody else besieges you, you have access to. John told this to the woman about the well, right? In John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. What a wonderful illustration that is. What a wonderful illustration it is to a people, especially at this time, where water meant life or death. And of course, this sort of stream of water, this holy water is going to be part of the heavenly realm, which we will uh, dwell in as well. Revelation 21. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. And in the middle of the street and on the other side of the river was a tree of life, bearing kinds of fruit, 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. What's the result of having this living water? Will it make glad the city of God? Charles Adams Burton says this. The city of God was Jerusalem. It's now the church. A city is a place of security, society, unity, trade, freedom, order, pomp and splendor, pleasure and beauty. So the, the church of uh, Jerusalem was where God would dwell, and now church is where God dwells. He dwells here. He is here now. He is with us now, with his heavenly angels. And it makes glad this particular city, because 1 Corinthians 4, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. It's remarkable. We take this for granted. We do. Uh, we take many things for granted. But the idea that God would actually want to dwell with us, if you had an option, would you dwell with us? But God wanted to do that. This was radical 3,000 years ago. Absolutely radical. You've heard it said before that the opposite of love is not hatred. It's just apathy. I just don't care about you, right? It's interesting In Greek philosophy, in the Greek religions, in the pantheon of of the Greeks and of the Romans, the pagan ideal for a god was apatheia, apathy. The gods were completely detached from human needs and concerns. So the idea of a substitutionary atonement, of the idea of God actually dwelling with the people and actually sending his son in human form to be with them was ridiculous. Then you take the idea that he died for them as a criminal and it's just, they're splitting their sides in laughter. They just can't believe it. It's nonsense to them. Maybe that's one reason why the nations are in an uproar and the kingdom is tottered. Now, what psalm does that remind you of? Psalm 1 and 2 sort of introduce the entire Psalter here. Psalm 2 asked the question, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is Vladimir Putin. This is every ten-horned dictator, every tyrant that ever lived, every iman who ever persecuted a Christian. That's who they are. And we look at the headlines and we get overwhelmed and we think these people are going to rule and they're going to destroy everything. What is God's response? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. They're just little puny people who want to be like God. And God mocks the Vladimir Putins of the world. And then he will speak to them in anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king upon holy Zion, uh, my holy mountain, Jesus, of course. And I will surely tell the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as thy inheritance and the very ends of the earth at thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like an earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. We don't have to tremble at the Vladimir Putins because we've got a God who's over all the universe and who is good and who cares for us. This is what makes glad the city of God. And then he goes on, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. We're protected by the uproar of these nations because we serve the king of our stronghold. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, who does that man be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, sabbath his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Then we see the vindication of confidence in verses 8 through 11. Come, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of the host is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. So notice this. There's an invitation here. And this is, this is something you need to be doing. You need to be saying, come and look, come and look what Jesus Christ offers. There's an invitation here to come, behold the works of the Lord. All history is his story. We are to watch and learn. There's an invitation for us to have faith, to actually believe these things. What does he do? He makes wars to cease. He burns the chariots with fire. Um, It was the practice of the Romans when they would uh, conquer a particular people, they would burn their weapons, uh, uh, the weapons of the subdued people. Vespasian, when he finished his wars, he had a medal struck. Uh, And and in one uh, uh, one part of the medal, he showed the goddess of peace holding up an olive branch, which was representing negotiated peace. And then one hand with the other setting fire to a heap of armor, uh, uh, which is representing forced peace. God is going to bring about this peace. He is going to burn these chariots with fire. Of course, the chariot was the most feared weapon at the time. And again, going back to your Old Testament, this is why you need to read the Old Testament. Go back to Judges 4. You remember that situation with Sisera? Sisera, the Canaanite king, was uh, uh, oppressing the people of God because God. they had forgotten God and they had gone into the cycle of the judges and they were repenting and they were going to fight Sisera now. But it was said there in Judges 4 that Sisera had 900 iron chariots against the simple footmen farmers of the Israelites. But according to some uh, archaeologists, what likely happened is there was a torrent of rain and those chariots got uh, uh, bogged down. And uh, Judges 4.15 says, "The The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all of his army. And of course, the end of that story is that Jael... A simple uh, nomadic woman drove a spike through Sisera's temple and killed him uh, through the humiliation, uh, the uh, effect of of not even being able to die in battle. That's, again, folks, simple footman farmers going against 900 chariots. That's your God. That's the same God who's going to take care of you, take care of your concerns, take care of your children, your grandchildren, your mortgage, whatever he needs to take care of, whatever you're... Anxious about. Psalm 20 verse 7 says this. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. That's the call of a Christian. That's what we are to boast in. We don't put our hope in anything else. And then you have this wonderful command here. uh, Cease striving and know that I am God. God. Uh, I had lunch with a Methodist pastor yesterday, and uh, he was with, in some, with my sons, and uh, he asked me what was I was preaching, and I said, Psalm 46, and he said, oh, don't be anxious, I'm God. And I said, no, I don't think that's it. <laughs> well... It is it, but that's not what our translation says. So I kind of look like an idiot in front of the Methodist, which I really hate. Uh, but, but, but notice this passage says, cease striving, uh, know that I'm God. But often, when we look at that, we think what he's saying is, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, I am God. Is that true? That is true. Is that a good application of what this is? That is. But that's not what the text is saying. It's a command. Cease striving. Know that I am God. You put your hope in God. James Montgomery Boyce says, lay down your arms, surrender, acknowledge that I am the one and only victorious God. It's not not a suggestion to calm down. It is a command to recognize that your God is a mighty fortress. And he has sworn, and he cannot lie, to take care of you. Frankly, I think that makes a better coffee cup logo than be not anxious, I am your God. It takes the in a sense, the responsibility away from us. We just submit. We are to cease striving and know the God. What would your life be like? What would our church be like? What would your household be like? What would your culture be like? If you actually obeyed that commandment, God is God. He is a mighty fortress. Nothing can happen to me that is not beyond his will or according to his will. Right before uh, he was killed at the Battle of Asmos, Covenanter leader Richard Cameron preached this particular text And he says here, God gives not an account of his matters to any. Beware then of drawing rash conclusions. They were in the midst of a war. They were on the right side, but they were completely outnumbered by mercenaries. The English didn't even want to fight the poor Scots covenanters, so they sent mercenaries in there to do it. And he knew this battle may turn down, may go badly. He may even get killed, and he was. But he would cease striving. He would know that God was God despite all of that. We think about Luther's testimony, and it's so uh, wonderful to to think about this because in so many ways, this is our testimony as well. But Luther grew up as a child, looked down at the frowning face in the stained glass window of the parish church in Mansfield, Germany. Uh, Terror gripped him when two of his best friends died uh, at an early age. And you've probably heard the story that he was walking out in in a field one time during a lightning storm, and lightning struck so close to him that it knocked him down. So he cried out, help me, St. Anne, I, I, I will become a monk. St. Anne is the, is the mother of Mary, but she's the patron saint of minors. And Luther came from a minor family, so that St. Anne would often be prayed to uh, during the meals at that particular home. He promised he would become a monk. He dropped out of law school, much to the disappointment of his father. He became an Augustinian monk in the Hermits of Erfurt, not because they were the best, but they were the hardest. They were the most difficult order to be a part of. Uh, and uh, he chose to study theology, but when he was questioned why he would join, uh, they asked, what do you seek? And he answered, God's grace and your mercy. As a student of law, he looked at the law and he recognized he is guilty and he's, not guil- he's guilty before the eyes of God. He sought every human means to rid himself of his guilt and the terror of God's judgment. He actually wore out his confessors, confessing sin. And one of the people he confessed to uh, said, you've really never confessed anything that's all that interesting. <laughs> you know? I mean, can you come up with some better sins? You know, we're a little tired of some of these. Uh, but uh, John Stappitz, who was his spiritual father, encouraged Luther to read the Bible while he was a monk. Now, wouldn't you think he kind of would have done that? But Luther had not read the Bible. He had not read the Bible. And he said here to Luther, he said, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's hands. God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. And listen to what the Word of God says. And of course, during his studies, he came across, he looked at the Greek, not the Latin that was used at the time, the original Greek. He looked at Romans chapter 1, our call to worship here, And he understood a principle of justification. The church at the time said that justification came after sanctification. God works on you a while through the sacraments and your good works and this kind of thing. And eventually you've earned the right to be justified. But in scriptures, that's not how that term is used. In the Greek. In the Greek, the justification that occurs is a righteousness that's outside of yourself. It's a righteousness that God actually places upon you. So justification becomes, comes before sanctification. And it made all the difference in the world, not just for Luther, but for us. Luther said this, When I discovered that I, that I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Well, when God saves people, we glorify God. And he says here that I will be exalted. God says I will be exalted. He's going to be exalted with or without you, no matter what. He's going to get the glory. I recall, again, being kind of tormented with my own sins some 40 years ago and very concerned about the end times. Those are in the days, you know, I grew up where we have had nuclear bomb drills. And uh, the alarm would go off on Saturday, would remind us that the Soviet Union was, uh, you know, poised to be able to attack us and that sort of thing. So I thought a lot about uh, the kind of things that, that, that might uh, occur. And one of the things that occurred to me was I was on the wrong side. I was on the wrong side. If there's a great climactic battle at the end of the age, I'm on the bad guy's side. So what a blessing it was to switch banners To be saved by God's grace and to pick up the banner of God, the banner of righteousness, the banner of Christ, and lay down the banner of this world, the banner of sin, and the banner of the devil. Leopold says of this psalm, Few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord in the midst of very real dangers as strongly as this one does. What I love about this psalm is the closing. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts were with us. It's a wonderful account of faithful John Wesley. John Wesley, of course, when, when he was in his youth, could preach and thousands would be able to hear him. But as he was dying, he, his, he had lost his voice. And with great difficulty, they would have to get close to him and listen to him on his deathbed. And, and right before he died, uh, all of a sudden his voice got strong and he, and he cried out, Best of all, God is with us. And they were shocked and they looked at him. Then he got his hand up and he started rotating his hand. Best of all, God is with us. And he soon died after that. Folks, don't wait to be on your deathbed. Don't miss out all that God has for you. Don't miss all the evidences that our God is a mighty fortress. Don't wait till then. Nurture that principle your entire life. Enjoy life to the fullest the way it's meant to be with communion with God. Knowing that your sins are forgiven. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom... Is forever. Father, thank you for the confidence and the faith that you give us uh, through your holy word. Uh, Forgive us or how often we neglect it. We get so concerned, so overwhelmed with the things of this world. Then all we have to do is look to heaven. Look to your word. Be reminded of the great promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. And we have a calm, a peace. And we enjoy the holy waters which you have poured upon us. Bless us, we pray, God, with a certain joy, a confident spirit of knowing... That our God is a mighty fortress. In Christ's name, amen.